This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Thanks for being with us. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamperin today. Let me tell you what's coming up. We are going to be talking about National Indigenous Peoples Day, which is today. We're going to be chatting about your money and whether you should be spending it freely this summer. A lot of people are saying, you know what? Pull back a little bit. Be a little cautious. There are some dark clouds on the horizon. Are those correct? We'll be getting into the costs of living in the city of Hamilton. Speaking of money, summertime songs and bringing back old songs that are now hitting number one on the charts again. The uh, city of Hamilton, the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, has got its first student census out. We'll look into that with the chairman of the board. And Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us a day after announcing he would not be seeking re-election. All that coming up. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Not just the first day of summer. I was on Google this morning. The graphic, you know, the little picture that changes above the search bar all the time. It was a piece of indigenous art. Hmm. Ah, yes. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. Reminded me. I want to bring in Angela Belgard, Indigenous Lead for Our Kids Network. Angela, thanks for the time today. Hi. Happy to be here always with you, Scott. Really appreciate that. Now tell me, what does Indigenous Pe- National Indigenous Peoples Day, what does it mean to you? It means lots. It's a day of celebration. It's a day to share my culture um, with others to really help promote who we are and our contributions to Canada. You know, I know, at least I think that most people now are very familiar with National Truth and Reconciliation Day, maybe not for all the right reasons, mostly because the Prime Minister got caught in a scandal last year, so we all remembered it was burned into our brains. Do you think as many people or more people or the same number of people are know when they wake up today that today is National Indigenous Peoples Day? Well, I absolutely hope so, because this is the 26th year that we are celebrating this particular day. So, you know... If you don't know it, the time is to know what this day is all about and go out and celebrate. There's activities everywhere that you could partake in to learn more about Indigenous people, our culture, our heritage, and our contributions to this country. Have have all those things, at least do you believe the perceptions of those things have changed in recent years as there's been more and more discussion of Indigenous people? Because there's always been the discussion, but it's certainly much more on the front burner these days. I think you're absolutely right, Scott. There is a more awareness through some of the unfortunate uh, things we've heard in the media. But, um, yeah, it, this is, I feel a wave. I feel a change. Um, you know, I work a lot with young people, and my heart soars. They know a lot more about Indigenous people and our contributions to this country than I certainly had the opportunity to learn when I was in school. So, yeah, I'm very heartened about it. And, of course, our Kids Network is dedicated to help people understand the truth through our education efforts. So, absolutely, I would say. Um, I, I feel very positive about uh, people right now and, and what they're learning about us. I would guess, uh, I don't know, I'm not Indigenous, so I don't know um, how an Indigenous person exactly might celebrate today, but for those who aren't, because I'm guessing most of the people listening today are not Indigenous people, in fact, I know that, how should they, how could they, how would you advise or suggest that they celebrate National Indigenous Peoples Day? Well, first of all, if you don't know what's happening in the area, uh, do a quick search and figure it out, because I can guarantee you that somewhere near you, there'll be an activity happening. For example, Hamilton, I know that there's uh, from 1 to 4 today, something's happening at City Hall to celebrate our culture. Burlington this evening. Everywhere you look, there'll be something. So um, just do a quick search and go, 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 learn more, be present, 
be reflective, and have some intent when you go, what are you going to learn about? Um, today, I will be celebrating by doing many things. I've already created uh, greeted the day in prayer. I'm going to go to a high school and bake some bannock, a traditional food, with a bunch of youth, high school youth. And I'll be down helping to smudge the crowd and do some other uh, spiritual things down in Burlington Waterfront today to really celebrate our dance and our stories and our contributions. And you have used the word celebrate almost exclusively in this. That's what today is, right? It's a celebration as opposed to National Day of Truth and Reconciliation is different, but this is a real celebration. This is a celebration, and, and we've been wanting, you know, wanting to share our culture all the time. From the time settlers came, uh, immigrants came, you know, discoveries came, we share. And this is a day for us to share and celebrate and really help other people understand who we are in this country and to really celebrate our contributions that we're not going anywhere. We haven't yet. So let's join each other to recognize each other's gifts and contributions and build a country based on mutual respect and understanding. That is Angela Belgard, Indigenous Lead for Our Kids Network. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. Angela, thanks for the time today. Thanks for talking about this. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us now, a man who yesterday, while we were on the show, uh, put out a release announcing that he will not be seeking re-election in this upcoming municipal election, which opens the door for a new mayor. But for now, for five more months, he is the mayor of the city of Hamilton. His name is Fred Eisenberger. He joins us. Mr. Mayor, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Scott. Good to be with you. Well, you as well. And and, and I wonder if... You know, if I'm correct, you were a real estate agent in a past life, right? I have been uh, in real estate, correct. And uh, I've also been in the consulting business in the water and wastewater industry. And, and of course, uh, with the Canadian Urban Institute uh, as their CEO mm. for a while in terms of uh, the city building public realm research. Well, when you look back at all those, because you've done a bunch of different things, and then you look at being a mayor, I mean, if you had to do it over, would you do it all over again? Would you would you run for mayor again, knowing the challenges, knowing the flack, knowing the successes, all those things? Would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't come to running for mayor lightly. I, you know, I, I, I spent my time for nine years as a counselor. I I got into politics because I didn't believe that we were moving quickly enough on the environmental front, and um, and uh, that uh, I did see that there were opportunities that Hamilton was missing, and we had a had a lack of confidence as a community. So I, I uh, you know, all the way through, I I, I decided that uh, I wanted to build on that, and uh, as mayor, I got uh, you know an added opportunity to kind of work on the very important confidence building. Uh, employment opportunity, uh, transit uh, building, uh, you know, things that really would make Hamilton uh, a diverse and sustainable community. And I think we've got a long way towards uh, making that happen. So, yeah, I would do it all over again. I am uh, passionate about our city. Uh, I'm not going to go away. I will find other things to do to contribute. But having said all of that, uh, I'm in my 70th year. I've had three, uh, you know, terms of mayor and just about everything that I set out to do is either in place or uh, or on its way, and so now it's time for somebody else to step up and, uh, and build on that progress. 
Uh, I find it interesting that, that one of the reasons why you decided to get into politics was because things were not moving quickly enough. Because I think people would even today say things don't move quickly enough. Is that just the nature of politics? Did you get in there and then realize, you know, it does take a long time for stuff to happen? Yeah, you know, it, incremental progress is is how you can uh, how you can move forward. You know, you you don't change the world overnight. You don't change. Uh, people's minds overnight it takes a long time for people to accept change change is difficult uh so uh you chip away at it and uh, uh on the environmental front we have we have made huge huge progress you know the remedial action plan in the harbor the harbor water quality is is better than it's ever been that we've had massive investments in our sewage treatment plant and all kinds of ways of diverting water from getting uh, getting into the creeks rivers and lakes and, and so that 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 has been a massive effort uh we've had uh, great uh, incremental progress on, on downtown redevelopment and redevelopment throughout the entire city and uh that's now happening so 15 years ago we uh we in- introduced incentives for people to uh, to uh, to invest in our downtown at that time, we couldn't get a bank to to lend anybody any money, and we actually created a capital bank to help uh, engineer that. And slowly but surely, the uh, the uh, the investments uh, started to come, and is now exploding uh, in terms of uh, new opportunities and buildings that are being put up to uh, to uh, reanimate our downtown and downtowns. I was part of the first uh, waterfront uh, study back in 1993. When I thought we were underutilizing our waterfront uh, from Pier 8 all the way over to Coots Paradise. And uh, that study looked at uh, all the things that were possible along that uh, corridor. And uh, today, some 25 years later, we have uh, re-engineered our waterfront to make, make it a people place. Uh, just uh, just the other day, we were at Cops Pier to uh, to rename Cops Pier with the Cops family, and that uh, recreational pier is now open and ready for use, and it is very, very popular. And the housing that uh, that has been envisioned there that we've been working on for years is uh, is poised to start construction. So a signature housing waterfront development long in the making, finally coming to reality. Mm. So and, and you know, I, I, I can go on, but uh, but you know everything that I've I've uh, really been working on is is either done or in process, and I, I haven't even mentioned uh, the biggest one, which is LRT. Yeah, and and you do you point to a number of successes, and yet there are people who say this happens, but council is dysfunctional. You've heard this. I'm not breaking any news to you. Is council dysfunctional, or is it just the way local politics works that these things, as I say, take this time and deal with these bumps along the way? Council's never been dysfunctional. You know, there there have been moments where uh, there has been uh, you know, folks that have done things that might be a little off the wall. But you know, we're we're a place of debate, discussion, and, and uh, you know, disagreement, and then hopefully uh, finding a path forward. And uh, that that is a dysfunction. That's that's the way politics works. Can you can you think of a time where? That didn't happen, and you know, and it should happen that way. We we, we don't want a collection of people there that are of all the same mind and of all the same view, and uh, you know, everything is just harmonious and beige. Uh, you want uh, you want people to come and bring their different ideas, and that inspires uh, you know good positive change. And you know, a lot of that positive change has been happening in this term of council. Uh, where we've actually cemented the the idea of uh, containing our urban boundaries, something I've talked about for years, 
curbing urban sprawl and re- redensifying our city uh, is the right way to go. It's a cost-saving measure. It's an environmental measure. Uh, so, you know, you want people with diverse and different ideas to come together and debate the issues of the day. Mm-hmm. You want them to be respectful. Uh, you want them to be agreeable. or uh, You want them to disagree but not just be disagreeable. Every once in a while, uh, you know, tempers flare and things get a little heated. But that does not make for a dysfunctional council. Uh, We've always found a way of moving forward. That is Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Wish we had a lot more time. We will uh, be talking in the future, though. Uh, Thanks for the time today. My pleasure. I'll be around for another five months, Scott. So uh, There there you go. Uh, You'll be back. You'll be back on here. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know what's not off is, and I I say this sort of half Silly, but really not. I mean, the price of living is not off. It is It is never off. The cost of living continues to rise. It, we, we were talking yesterday on the show about how we're hearing now inflation is going to be 7.4% is the number we're expecting to hear officially. That affects everything among them, among those things that it affects, housing. And we in Hamilton, there's a new study that's just out by Policy Advisor, and it lists the five most expensive places in North America to live. The five in all of North America. New York is number one. Mississauga is two. Vancouver is three. Hamilton, Ontario is number four ahead of Toronto. I want to bring in Jim Dunn. He's a professor at McMaster University and the director of the Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. He joins us now. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here, Scott. So you tell me if, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I had said to you that one day down the road, Hamilton would be the fourth most expensive place in North America to live, you would have said? Well, uh, there's some qualification. It's relative relative to incomes is one of the things, right? So that particular measure they did uh, is actually um, how expensive is housing relative to incomes? It's not the absolute expense okay. of housing. So that's important to notice. And Hamilton does traditionally have relatively lower incomes than other centers in the region. So, um, so that's part of what's driving this. And I think the rank is less important. And I'm not really sure how this study was done in the first place. It's driving a lot of clicks though, which is mm. what it's intended to do. Um, but I think that the bigger issue is that, yeah, we do have uh, issues related to housing affordability and we've seen it with home ownership market and not that's cooling down thanks to, well, not thanks to, but owing to um, increasing uh, interest rates. And so I think what we will see is that we'll see at least some rise in um, in uh, rental prices just because there's going to be fewer people leaving, exiting rental status into home ownership would be one of the reasons. And then the other thing that we've seen um, that's specific to Hamilton is that during the pandemic, there was increasing flexibility of work arrangements and so forth. And so people could live farther away. So now, you know, that has driven people's choices about where to live uh, in the GTA and beyond. And so that's driving our market as well. Uh, now, for the record, just this yeah. study, and again, the study is what a study is, but they also point out the cost of transit is very much more expensive here than some places. There are other things as well, but but clearly um, housing, and we've talked about this now for years in Hamilton. It's been now years that we have been on this rise, much more just before the interest rates went up. But let me get your take on the endless debate that we've been having because everyone knows about the urban boundary discussion and everything else, supply versus density versus all kinds of things is there a is there an easier i won't say an easy answer is there an easier answer to try and get housing prices in this city under control well 
I don't know that there's any easy answers, certainly not where we're at now, but, um, you know, I think one of the things that we need to think about is to be able to do it in the most efficient way possible. And that unquestionably is through greater intensification. And that's building inside the areas that are already built up. And, you know, the city council has made the the determination on that, on limiting the urban growth boundary. And so we're going to have no choice but to intensify. That has a big advantage in that it's quite a bit more efficient in terms of the way that we use our infrastructure. So instead of a relatively small number of people in an area using infrastructure like roads and sewer, and water and all that sort of stuff, you actually have a larger number of people. So it's actually quite more cost efficient. So that's one of the good things that'll come out of this. And the other thing is that there's a very high demand for those kinds of living environments. So they often will call it transit-oriented development. And there have been studies that have shown that transit-oriented development is really expensive. And part of the reason it's so expensive is because it's vastly undersupplied. And so Hamilton's actually very well positioned to deliver a lot of transit-oriented development with the um, LRT coming online in a few years and with increasing transit connections uh, via GO to the greater uh, Golden Horseshoe and area, I think are all advantageous for Hamilton in that respect. And so, you know, what it's going to do to prices is going to vary on a lot of different factors, including interest rates and mm-hmm. um, and uh, growth more generally. Well, and there's even a, a breakdown into that because there are some who say, look, most of the, or a huge amount of the living, condi- the, the, the units that are built along transit, along the LRT, let's say, should be affordable, should be apartment style should be whatever else and others are saying you know we're building the lrt to try and build up our city and and make it so these things are available if people want to build condos let them build condos how how do you balance those two sides because those are talking about two potentially very different price ranges were for housing units Sure. Well, we have vastly underinvested in affordable housing for the last 25 plus years. Um, and that's not just Hamilton. It's been a national phenomenon. And we have a historic moment here where we've got an opportunity with the land that's been acquired for the construction of the LRT to ins- and the, the growth opportunities that are going to be available to insist that a portion of that be dedicated to affordable housing. And it will be a a really, really unprecedented missed opportunity if we don't do that. And so what that looks like, uh, you know, I think has to be penciled out very carefully, but, you know, it ought to be at the very least, you know, certain percentage of deeply affordable units, a certain percentage of, you know, 80% below market kinds of units and so forth. And so that's going to be part of the opportunity and the privilege of being able to Mm. develop on that line where it's, there's potential to be very lucrative for developers and, um, and we should definitely be doing that. And we should actually, we should also be using it as a vehicle to support the non-market sector. So here I'm thinking about not-for-profit organizations that develop mm. affordable housing. Yeah. Yep. Our uh, non-market sector is relatively small compared to other countries. And we have a huge opportunity to build some capacity there. And close to transit lines is the best for the uh, the people who need affordable housing. Jim Dunn, Professor at McMaster, Director of the Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Once again, what is old is new again. I want to bring in Eric Alper. He's a music publicist, a writer. He does everything in the world of music. Eric, how are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. Feeling old. (laughs) Yes, and probably I'm not as good as Kate Bush, who I didn't even, like, I had not heard the name Kate Bush in probably 30 years And then all of a sudden, Stranger Things comes out and uses one of her songs, Running Up That Hill. And 
this song that had been a big hit in 1985 is suddenly number one again. How does this happen? Um, 43 million people watching Stranger Things <laughs> in, in one of the, um, the key scenes that the 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 most recent series has um hugely emotional i'm i'm definitely not going to give any spoilers away um but one of the characters has loved kate bush um in the series for um since since the beginning and so when they use running up that hill i don't even think even the music supervisors whose job it is to find music and to put in it had any clue that this was going to be a resurgence. This is um, once in a lifetime opportunity, I think, not only for Kate Bush, but also for the music industry to realize and now have final proof that if you do things correctly, if you have mm. a really great song with a really great cultural moment like Stranger Things um, is, um, Stranger Things have happened. You well, and this isn't the first time, right? Because last season, and was it last season in Stranger Things where the song Never Ending Story, the theme song, yeah. which again, nobody had heard. This is a show based in the 80s. Nobody, honestly, nobody had listened to Never Ending Story since the 80s. And all of a sudden, everyone's humming Never Ending Story, which they didn't even like in the 80s. But now it was fantastic. Yeah, you know, this is just another example of classic songs of, of the past being rejuvenated through placements in a modern context. You know, you have the Fleetwood Mac's song Dreams was being used by that guy on TikTok that was drinking the ocean spray um, with that song <laughs> in the background. Bill Collins in the air tonight hit number one on on iTunes after um, after those twins heard the song for the first time and filmed themselves oh, yeah. on yeah. their YouTube channel. So that blew up again um so you know the the industry is is weird you know it, we all thrive on new music you know it's got to be new what's the first thing when you walked into a record store what was on the the shelf catching your eye it was the new releases but 80 percent of the music sales and streams and views are from songs that were at least 18 months and older. So the music industry, you know, is going to continue to push that new stuff. But you can better believe that there's a lot of marketing meetings going on since this month. No kidding. About, about no kidding. how to like revive and revamp those catalogs other than, well, let's just stick it in a box set and sell it for $400 and get a hundred people <laughs> to buy it. This is like working with Netflix and Apple and a couple of other streaming services have announced in the last couple of weeks um, what their goals are for the next three or to five years for their shareholders. Apple is planning on something like 1,400 new programs that they are going to launch. That's a lot of music that needs to be built in there. And you yeah, can, you know, Eric, it's going to be interesting. The thing that, here's the thing that surprises me. I've yeah. always been under the impression, because we always hear it, that we love our music. So those of us who grew up in the 80s, this song, great. This is fan. But anyone who comes along after our music is supposed to suck. Their music is supposed to be better. And yet here you have examples yeah. where when people find a song from a different time, they maybe think it's new for them. But somehow that idea that, oh, mom and dad's music is terrible. <laughs> it, it doesn't. Sometimes it actually isn't. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. You know, I, I think that this is the first generation of 8 to 18-year-olds that actually listen to the same kind of music that their parents do and vice versa. Um, you know, music is one of the ways that we all like to feel young. And if you've ever gone to a new Kids on the Block show or Pink or Shania Twain show, it really truly is like young kids and and grandparents that are mm. enjoying it. Um, the, the other thing is that, you know, 
Kate Bush's influence can easily be seen in Billie Eilish, in Olivia Rodrigo, in Lord, and all three artists have bowed at the feet of Kate Bush when they were growing up listening to their own music because of their parents. So teenagers that are listening to Kate Bush for the first time, this isn't strange music. You know, it's not like they're getting into the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, which was out of this world back in 1967 and still is. There's really no context for uh, an album like that today. But uh, with Kate Bush, um, she's not so different than what they're listening to right now. And uh, yeah, I uh, and, and I can say the same thing for Phil Collins and, and Fleetwood Mac. Funny you mentioned the Beatles, though, because the first time I really remember a movie taking an old song and spinning it so that it became incredibly popular again, probably number one again, was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off with yeah. the Beatles. Um, and it did. It hit, it hit top with five Twist all and over Show. again. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was one. That was really the... Now, I'm sure there were others, but that was the first time I really remember an old song getting a brand new life. I mean, there were other songs that have been, you know, twisted or tweaked, or like when Eric Clapton did Layla with an acoustic, but that wasn't a movie. That was just him reworking his music. Every once in a while, and I don't know, I hate this word because it's just so precious, but when people say it captured the zeitgeist, but it seems like once in a while, that's what happens, that a song just, it clicks for some reason again. Yeah, and and it, it you know it, it goes back to the audience rating of of Stranger Things in the UK. Whenever um, Levi's five hundred one jeans in the eighties and nineties used an old Motown song, it would bring it back to life. We saw that with the Temptations and the Four Tops and Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye all having hits in the eighties for their song because at the time there were only three TV stations for people to watch. There were BBC One, Two, and Three, and that was it. So you had a complete um, audience watching and listening to that music some for the first time some realizing how good it was and the states in canada we have a multitude of stations so we never had old songs climbing the chart except for now because you have um shows like a netflix or a marvel movie bringing dear mr fantasy back into the top 10 because it was in the avengers film in the opening scene when you have a hundred million people watching something it's bound to see sudden you know what else is interesting too um you know i briefly mentioned the record store attitude we don't need to cross our fingers and hope that they have the hounds of love album no, by k yeah, bush where the song right. is you want a song it is right there on your streaming service and you can watch it whenever you want and, however many times you want and we got to go the other thing you've also got um what's the uh, uh shazam so that even if you don't yeah. know what it is you just hit it and you can right. find out uh, right. here's we got to run but here's how long ago it's been since kate bush was a huge star and the song was out go on google look up images and try and find a current picture of Kate Bush. There are very few. It's been that long that she's been out of the public eye that no one even takes her picture anymore. Yeah. And yet here she is back at number one. Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Maybe it's not so easy to be carefree these days in one way anyway. We're now hearing a lot of experts say, Maybe you shouldn't be so carefree with your spending this summer. There are some dark clouds looming economically, we hear. And a lot of people are saying you might want to not do all the things you might have done. Save a few pennies. Is that a good bit of advice or is that overly cautious? Let's bring in Paul Anachuk, Vice President of Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. He joins us now. Paul, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for joining us this morning. So, you know, we hear 
experts tell us these things and sometimes i think oh you know experts by definition have to be cautious and have to look for the worst case scenario and that's their job to make sure that they look after us in this field but are they right this time or is it still over cautious to say yeah you might want to tighten your wallet a little bit well there's a couple of factors that really come into that you know number one is Yes, we're at the end of COVID, but we're not through that period yet. So there is always that concern. And I know a lot of people still have that concern, even though people are being uh, carefree out there. You know, we are still seeing the odd person with the mask out there. But the other concerns really are that we have seen the interest rates already go up uh, a couple times this year. Uh, even the Bank of Canada is saying, hey, the rate increases are not going to end anytime soon. And of course, we see the roaring inflation. And, you know, it's 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 so... Uh, during summer right now, you see it everywhere because what you know, you, gas pumps. If you're going anywhere here in Ontario, you got to hit a gas pump. And when we're at two dollars a liter, it's a major concern. So you know, the economists that are saying you know you need to be very careful this summer, you know, they are right. But you know what? They're also saying you know what? Plan. Make sure that you plan ahead and just you're not out there recklessly spending because the other concern is that Canadians are carrying record household debt. And of course, that is going to impact and they're predicting a recession. So you see how Canadians are getting bombarded with bad news, but the polls are saying that they still want to go out. Yeah, and that is, that's the thing is that I think people have been held down for so long because of these things. They want to do something. And then as soon as they get around to saying, I want to do something, they're hearing, yeah, but, and it's, it's, it's sort of mixed messages. It's really tough, I think, to show restraint when you've been not able to do things for so long. This is also one of the hardest times of year to find restraint. And, uh, you know, the kids are getting out of school. They want to be active this summer. And parents are looking at their kids saying, you know, these are children that, you know, had to go through COVID, which, you know, any other generation really didn't have to go through it. And, uh, you know, the fear of missing out is huge. And again, with the beautiful weather like we're having today, it's hard not to get out and talk to people and seeing what they're doing. So, again, Canadians, you know, why we're saying you know, sit back and be cautious. You know, they're seeing people out. They want to meet with people. They want to break through their COVID shell and just, you know, be free again. During COVID, and, and it's interesting because during COVID, it's not like we were not spending money. Uh, you know, we, we on the show, on other shows, talk to people in household renovations and other things. I mean, people were spending lots of money. It was just on things that were not what they're spending money on right now. You know, people were spending money because they're also saving money in certain areas. Uh, a lot of businesses got a little bit of a boom during uh, COVID because a lot of households were able to cut discretionary expenses. Individuals that were working from home no longer had those expenses of dining out every day, transportation, parking, gas, and they were able to save money. What we're having right now is where people are getting back to their pre-pandemic uh, budgets and, you know, it, with the inflation, a lot of people's budgets just cannot handle uh, more expenses or even take on more debt. So this is where we're seeing people getting financially stressed. And really, it's because of debt stress. Are, are they going back, though, to their pre-pandemic spending? I've wondered about that because I wondered if a lot of people, when they realized, hey, I'm saving so much on not using gas with working from home and not buying coffee and not buying lunch and not buying new clothes and all these things, I wondered if people were going to, I, I thought they'd travel for sure because they want to get out and I thought they might go to restaurants. But a lot of other things, I thought, I don't know if they're going to go back to those days of the same things. 
Well, what we've been telling people, especially when we've been meeting with them, is you know, once we've been through the pandemic, you see we're saving money. Now, now start a new financial budget that includes those reduced expenses. Half of Canadians don't have budgets, and this has really been reinforced with one of the recent polls from Financial Planning Canada that half of Canadians don't have a budget. So. Even though you might have been saving some money, if you don't have a budget, you really don't have a roadmap to your financial future. And a lot of people are finding it already difficult because, again, uh, with tap technology, it's so easy just to tap that card and enjoy what you're looking at buying. But, Paul, budgets are depressing. You do a budget and you realize I don't have all the money to spend that I think I do. Budgets are uh, <laughs> why people look at budgets in the initial step. Budgets, like anything else uh, in your finances, it takes time to develop over time. Yes, it's going to be a little hard work at the start, but in the long run, a budget's going to allow you to you know, reduce your expenses, see where you can get some savings as well, and also apply that money to other areas you might want to enjoy. Or if you're tackling debt, you can tackle debt. But a budget's a perfect way for someone who wants to plan even for a vacation because you know you shouldn't have to put all your, all your uh, wants on spending. So that's why the budget is very key with a lot of individuals. Do you think there's been any change in, because people have been saving, we, we, we are not a saving people. I mean, some people are, but we, we, we put, as you say, we put a lot of stuff on debt. We put a lot of stuff on credit card. Has that changed at all because people have been able to save a little bit? Is our, uh, do you believe our attitudes are changing? So some people are saying, I'm now going to save up for something before I buy it rather than putting it on credit? Uh, not Unfortunately, that has not something we have been seeing. And, uh, you know, it's just people get back to their old patterns. You know, they they want to spend. What we're seeing right now is the record household debt. We are seeing that credit card use is uh, actually on the increase uh, in a lot during 2022. And what we're seeing is we're actually starting to see some uh, increases in insolvencies. So these are people filing consumer proposals and bankruptcies. It is a cautionary tale, I think. Again, a lot, so many people, including Paul, uh, telling us to not be just going wild this summer, which probably a lot of people were looking forward to doing, even if it was just a road trip. But Paul's right. Go to the pumps. We we just drove back for you know from a trip across part of the states, and uh, I don't think we'll be eating more than macaroni and cheese for the next few <laughs> days to catch up. Uh, Paul Anachik from BDO Debt Solutions. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Scott. You have a good day you as well uh yeah we just came back and and drove home and i gotta tell you two or three fill-ups along the way to get home and you realize oh boy it is expen- it is every bit as expensive as they've warned us about you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml the hamilton wentworth district school board has released the results of its first student census is essential. Well, it's a census. It, it is a, a poll, a questionnaire of students finding out all kinds of things about their background, about disabilities, about their religion, about their sexual orientation, about all kinds of things that they asked. Question is, what do you do with this? Let me bring in Don Danko, who's the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District District School Board, who joins us now. Don, thanks for the time this morning. Good morning, Scott. So let's go to that right away. What do you do with this now that you have this information? What What would you use it for? I think that's the, the critical question, isn't it? Uh, we know that we collected this information. It was building on uh, our staff census that we did a couple of years ago. Um, and it really helped us collect identity data that helps us know who our students are. What do we do with it? Well, the whole goal is to identify and figure out where there's 
overrepresentation in our school system, underrepresentation, where there might be systemic barriers for students. So we're really looking to identify opportunities to improve outcomes for students um, because we know that we, we have different achievement gaps for different student groups. Um, one of the things that we're mindful of is the way we use this data matters. We don't want to reinforce negative stereotypes or narratives that, that are harmful to uh, marginalized or historically marginalized groups. So we are consulting with the communities um, that are most impacted over the course of the summer to make sure that the way this data is used and presented back to the community is done well. One of the challenges I expect from this, we've been having it on the news uh, with Paul and, and with Lisa Pileski talking about this for over the last number of hours, is the the response was not unanimous. There was not a 100% response to this. In fact, as I understand, it was it was still reasonably low, the number of people who responded to this, correct? Yes, yes. We're just under 50%. And that, that is actually quite common. Other boards that have done student censuses, you know, years before us that are a bit of, ahead of the game, experience similar response rates. And I think part of the problem is people want to know, why do you want to know this information? What are you going to do with it? How does it impact my child? Mm -hmm. um, for families that are going to participate, why are you asking these types of questions? We need to show how we're going to use the information. And I think that will drive understanding and then better response rates as we go into the future. And, and the reason I say that may be a challenge is if it's under 50% and you look at the numbers you have now, how confident can you be that we can make some changes or do things because 50% of the people we don't really know? Or do you look at this and say, hey, not everyone votes in an election and we still go with the results of the people who voted? How do, how do you look at what you do with these numbers? Well, it's interesting. Like the sample collected is quite large and it would be considered, you know, from a data standpoint, sufficiently large to estimate, um, you know, our approximate numbers in terms of identity-based characteristics in our in our school board. So I think it, it is likely representative. It may not be perfectly accurate, but it does tell us some really interesting and important information about the demographics and the characteristics of our students. So I think we can act on the information we have. It's certainly, it, it's not about knowing um, that we have a specifically 2.3% of students identifying as, as one thing, and that will drive our action. It's more that we identify that we have students in that group that may be underrepresented, that may not see themselves in the curriculum, and we need to address that through, through programming. So I, I believe that there's, there's sufficient data here for us to start acting on, but we do want to continue to collect uh, data and get a better response rate. And, and, you know, when you talk about the 2.3%, I know you're just pulling a number out of the air as far as, you know, a random estimate for something, a hypothetical, but does it also raise some um, some further challenges as far as this being a bit of a, someone who now is in that 2.3%, whatever it is, if you don't respond to them equally, now that these numbers are public and out there, do you run the risk that they're going to say, you're not looking after me, you know, I'm here. And I'm not seeing any changes to benefit me. It becomes because you can't possibly satisfy everybody who on every side of this. That, that's such a great point. Um, I think you're right, though. Once we know that we see a student, and the point of this is that we can say we see you, we know you, and we want to respond and make sure that we're we're um, supporting you with the utmost care. Um, that you do see yourself in your curriculum, that you do see yourself in the school system, that you feel respected. I think there are ways to do that. And it's not necessarily about equality. It's about equity. Um, it, it's also just about making sure that when we're thinking of 
systemic barriers that are historic in a very colonial system that was contrived for a very specific group of people that were continuing to make progress moving forward um, so that everyone is supported and included in our schools. So I know that that's, that's a vague answer, but um, we have work to do. This does help us identify that work a little more specifically, and we, we will have to be very transparent and communicate how we're doing the work. And I think that's where people will say, okay, yes, I see that you were doing this for me. Let me ask you one that's really difficult. I think it's a really difficult question, and I'll say that up front, but how do you balance the majority or the largest numbers and serving the largest number of peoples while also then supporting the smallest? I mean, if you've got a conflict and there is, you know, and we look on these, there are numbers, large numbers in some cases, how do you make sure that we say, yeah, that's the majority and so that's where we have to lean? Or do you say, no, we don't care about the majority, we have to look after the the most marginalized? How do you do that? It is a, that is a hard question, but there is actually, I think, an easy answer. Um, you know, this is talking about, say, there are student census is named, we all count. And so when we think about our majority populations, we know who they are. Um, we have better data now to support what we, what we observe when we walk into our schools. Those populations are generally supported by the system as it exists because they are the majority, because the system serves the majority. So really, this is about not underserving the majority, but focusing attention on those who are underserved, those who have achievement gaps, um, because we want to make sure every one of our students is, again, supported, included, and therefore successful in school. And where we see those gaps, it tends to be students that, um, for some part of their identity, they are not part of the majority. So I think it's not about a competition between groups. It's really about um, identifying where we've got gaps in our system that we need to bridge so that all students can be successful. Is the plan to do this now every year or every couple of years, or what would you do going forward? Well, that's what uh, our staff are working on right now. So in terms of even just using the data and mapping of that plan, we have our human rights and equity team and our research and analytics team looking at that. They're going to be able to pull disaggregated data um, for different reports that we have. Again, we have to be mindful how we use that. And because the response rate is low, there may be an opportunity to continue to try to boost that response rate in the near future. But Typically, a student census is done somewhere around every every five years. Um, mm. So we, we maybe aren't there yet, but we will get into more of a routine as we um, as we collect this data. Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from five thirty to nine on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML dot com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.